Who were your biggest influences when it came to marriage? Maybe your parents, some close friends, a particular author or teacher, maybe even a show on television. Those influencers can be positive. They can also be negative. One study, which I've put in the show notes, concluded that children of divorced parents are 38% more likely to end up getting a divorce themselves. In my youth, I watched a lot of television, and they weren't always wholesome shows. One of the shows I watched was Married with Children, which portrayed a dysfunctional family with aloof parents, parents who really didn't have any affection for each other. Looking back, that show negatively influenced me on what marriage was supposed to be in probably more ways than I realize. What's challenging about finding positive examples of marriage is that we don't see all the nuances. We may see the loving moments in public, but not the disputes and friction behind closed doors. And when it comes down to it, nobody's marriage is perfect because we are imperfect people. However, what if I told you that there is a perfect relationship, one which we could look to, learn from, and seek to emulate? What if we had an example that demonstrated perfect love, perfect unity, and perfect submission? Let me propose to you that one such example exists, and that is the author of marriage, the triune God. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. If you've been following along in this podcast, you know that we have been discussing the sacraments for quite a number of episodes. Last week, we began discussing the sacrament of marriage by looking at the Jewish roots of marriage. Today, we're going to continue talking about the sacrament of marriage by looking not at a typical marriage relationship, but at the creator of marriage, the triune God. In Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, St. Paul writes, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband." Growing up in evangelical circles, I was no stranger to that passage of scripture. I've read countless commentaries on it and have heard even more sermons focused on it. I've heard a wide range of interpretations on the subject. Recently, a friend of mine who was raised up in a Baptist community told me that the way this passage was taught to her instilled in her that as a wife, she ultimately had to submit to her husband. If her husband wanted to do something, even if she didn't, and even if he was wrong, she as the wife was required to submit. Submission was her responsibility no matter what. I don't think that's what this passage is saying at all. In fact, I think that's a dangerous interpretation of this passage. Verse 21 at the beginning of this passage begins with the phrase, be subject or submit to one another. 
Let me suggest to you that the problem with so many interpretations of this passage is that we begin with this text. And when we begin here, we're forced to confront words like submit and love without a greater context of what those words mean. And like we do when we interpret text, we inject our own perceptions and experiences into the words. We can't help it. And being such a broken people, words like submit and love are going to be next to impossible to get right. One of the ideas I have found in Catholic circles is the notion that God's design for marriage is to reflect the intimate relationship of the Trinity. And so in order to understand the intent of marriage, the theology of marriage, the beauty of marriage, we must first gaze on the Trinity and allow that mysterious and intricate relationship to be our guide. I say that in full awareness that it's easier said than done. The first thing we must understand about the Trinity is that it is a mystery. There's an old legend that goes something like this. St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, was walking along the beach in northern Africa pondering the mysteries of the Trinity. He thought to himself, how do I make sense of the Trinity? How can I explain this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be one being but three distinct persons? If you've read St. Augustine's book, De Trinitate, you may be familiar with his ponderings on the subject. As he was walking along the beach, he noticed a boy in the distance digging a hole in the sand. It was a rather large hole. And suddenly, the boy got up, took a bucket, ran to the ocean, filled up the bucket with water, and brought it back and poured the water into the hole. Once the bucket was empty, he did it again, and again, and again, and again. St. Augustine approached the young boy and said, Son, what are you doing? The boy replied, I intend to take the entire ocean and put it inside this hole that I've dug. Augustine laughed. Lad, you can't be serious. There's no way that you can take the entire ocean and fill it in this little hole. Then the boy looked up at Augustine and said, I wager that I can fill this hole with the entire ocean quicker than you can fill your head with the complex mystery of the Trinity. With that, the boy vanished. The point of the story is that there are some mysteries that we will never completely grasp. We can submit to them, but that doesn't mean that we will completely understand them. And when it comes to the complexity and mystery of the Trinity, we share something with it. When a husband and wife unite, we enter ourselves into a mysterious relationship. Paul even uses the word a great mystery to describe it. Two individuals become one flesh. In the last episode, I explained how after God finished creating, he noticed something was missing. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. How did God recognize that this was the problem with his creation? Think about it. God has enjoyed an eternity of being communal in nature. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one being. The very nature of God is this complex yet harmonious and intimate community. In the creation story, God created man in his image. Adam was complete as a single person, but he was incomplete in the context of the fuller image of the Godhead made up of multiple persons. Thus, God immediately recognized that the communal relationship he himself enjoys in this complex mystery called the Trinity was lacking in Adam. And so he not only created Eve, but he created this marriage whereby Adam and Eve enter into a mystical union where the two individuals become one flesh. While the Trinity and our marriage relationships are mysteries, there are some observations we can make in hope to emulate the perfect relationship of the Godhead. And I would like to break up the triune relationship into two parts, substance and function. First, let's explore the substance of the Trinity. 
One of the challenges in trying to understand the Trinity is that we often want to apply analogies, but every time we do that, we run the risk of stumbling into a heresy. For example, some people have said that the Trinity is like us. In our relationships, we can be a father, we can be a husband, and we can be a son at the same time. But that is the heresy of modalism. God does not play separate roles or parts as though he's switching between being a father and being a son and being the Holy Spirit. No, God has three distinct and separate persons, but the Bible declares that God is one. Thus, we can never say that God is three beings or that God is one singular person. From the very beginning of Genesis, we see three distinct persons operating together in unity and harmony from the creation of the world all the way to the new creation of heaven and earth in Revelation. Paragraphs 253 to 255 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church state, quote, The Trinity is one. We do not confess three gods, but one God in three persons, the consubstantial Trinity. The divine persons do not share the one divinity among themselves, but each of them is God whole and entire. The Father is that which the Son is, the Son that the Father is, the Father and the Son that which the Holy Spirit is, by nature one God. In the words of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, each of the persons is that supreme reality, the divine substance, essence, or nature. The divine persons are really distinct from one another. God is one, but not solitary. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not simply names designating modalities of the divine being, for they are really distinct from one another. He is not the Father who is the Son, nor is the Son he who is the Father, nor is the Holy Spirit he who is the Father or the Son. They are distinct from one another in their relations of origin. It is the Father who generates the Son who is begotten and the Holy Spirit who proceeds. The divine unity is triune. The divine persons are relative to one another because it does not divide the divine unity. The real distinction of the persons from one another resides solely in the relationships which relate them to one another. In the relational names of the persons, the Father is related to the Son, the Son to the Father, and the Holy Spirit to both. While they are called three persons in view of their relations, we believe in one nature or substance. Indeed, everything in them is one where there is no opposition of relationship. Because of that unity, the Father is holy in the Son and holy in the Holy Spirit. The Son is holy in the Father and holy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is holy in the Father and holy in the Son. End quote. The persons of the Trinity are so intimate and intertwined that it creates a single unified being which we call God. We don't believe in three gods, we believe in one God. And God establishes his singular being in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 which states, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, end quote. In fact, Jesus emphasized the mystical union of the Trinity when he said, quote, If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, end quote. Imagine being so in sync, so intimate, so about each other that a friend could spend time with one spouse and feel like they've gotten to know the couple. This is challenging stuff. It's impossible to fully wrap our brains around the idea that God is one yet three distinct beings. But the reality is that not only does this apply to God, but this mystery applies to us in marriage. So even if we can't completely make sense of this mystery, how can we see this relationship function and apply it to our marriages? 
In taking a look at the function of the relationship of the Trinity, first take notice that each of the persons of the Godhead has a different role and a distinct role which they carry out to further the collective purpose. In the creation account, we see the complexities of God in various forms. The Spirit hovers over the waters. God speaks, and we learn later in John 1 that the Word of God is actually the second person of the Trinity. They all work together. It's like God saying, okay, we're going to create, and then each of the persons of the Trinity operates towards that purpose. Over and over, we see glimpses of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament. Moses approaches God and God says, no one can see my face and live. Yet we see Abraham have a face-to-face conversation with God before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We also see this with Jacob when he wrestles with God and Joshua just before the battle of Jericho. How can these three see the face of God even though Moses was not permitted to? The answer is likely that Moses encountered God the Father while Abraham, Jacob, and Joshua experienced a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus or the second person of the Trinity. We see the Holy Spirit on many occasions. How many times do we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone, a warrior like Joshua or one of the judges, one of the kings like David or one of the prophets? We often don't think about the different roles that each of the persons of the Trinity played because they're so unified. We see them almost as indistinguishable. Yet it appears that when God wanted to empower someone towards some mighty act, that was the role of the Holy Spirit. When someone needed a face-to-face meeting with God, that was the role that the Son fulfilled. This theme continues in the New Testament. Of course, the most obvious example is Jesus the Son. He becomes incarnate of the Virgin Mary and has a public ministry where he heals people and forgives sins. He is crucified and rises from the dead on the third day. But we also see the role of God the Father, not as obvious, but Jesus explains over and over that the Father is the one in control. Jesus prays to the Father and the Father empowers him. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to empower the believers. Not only do we see this function of various roles with a singular unified purpose, but we see secondly a function that includes submission to each other. For example, the role of the incarnation and redemption was given to the Son, but we also see the Son submit to the Father. Talking about the end times, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, quote, But about that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father, end quote. He recognized that wasn't for him to know, and he yielded that responsibility to the Father. Perhaps the most famous of this example of intersubmission was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed in Luke twenty-two forty-two, quote, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done, end quote. We also see Jesus submitting to the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 17, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate, referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, end quote. Not only do we see the persons of the Trinity complement each other and submit to each other, we also see them celebrate and promote each other. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 tells us that, quote, When Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased, end quote. 
If you get the chance, do a search on how many times Jesus refers to the Father, particularly in the Gospel of John. He's constantly celebrating, referring to him as generous and loving. For example, John 3.35 states, quote, The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands, end quote. And after Jesus ascends into heaven, we see the Holy Spirit bringing people to the Son, and the Son continue to bring people to the Father. It would seem like here's a good place to stop and move to the application. You know, we've taken a look, a glimpse at the Trinity. How do we apply this to our marriage? But I actually want to resist that urge and encourage you instead to meditate on the relationship of the triune God and consider what it would be like if your marriage reflected the Trinity. Let me be the first to say that this is easier said than done. But I think this was God's design for marriage. This is what love and submission looks like. He wanted husband and wife to reflect the communal relationship that he enjoyed in the Trinity. The fall ruined it, but it doesn't mean that we should abandon the type of marriage God calls us to. When we see marriage as a sacrament, when we enter into that sacrament as a particular way that God gives grace to us through the love and honor from our spouse, when we aim to emulate the Trinity, when we make the Trinity our role model for marriage, we redeem marriage. We bring God's kingdom to earth and restore Eden. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode and other pertinent information in your email inbox. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it. Just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to get started. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.